there is much less racism in 2022 than there was in 1922 or 1822. It is not hard to tell a story of progress on the front of race or really any other identity. And in telling that story, you start to foreshadow the next chapter. And you are basically motivating your people to say, listen, you are part of a lineage of people who have fought for freedom and justice, who fought for inclusivity and pluralism, and your task is to write the next chapter. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I want to tell you about an exciting event that is happening tomorrow, which is to say July 31st, starting at 10 a.m. Easter time, which is 3 p.m. in the United Kingdom and 4 p.m. on the European continent. And that is the second annual installment of the Persuasion Festival. We will have really great conversations with people who you may know from the podcast. We will have a report from the front lines of global liberalism with Yevgenia Albats, as well as Moises Naim. I will do a live recording of The Good Fight with the wonderful Coleman Hughes. We will have a very interesting panel on mental health in the United States with Norm Ornstein and Benjamin Miller. And we will have a quick talk about uh, the role of the internet in our current political dysfunction, as well as some of her activism for the recent recalls in San Francisco with Renee de Resta. It's going to be a great set of programs, and then we'll have a happy hour to hang out. I hope that you become a paying member of Persuasion to help support this community and join us for our annual celebration tomorrow, July 31st, 2022 starting at 10 a.m. To join the community and come to the festival, go to persuasion.community or for more details, you can go to persuasion.community slash p slash the dash persuasion dash festival. My guest today is Ibu Patel. Ibu is the founder of Interfaith America, the biggest American interfaith organization. And he is the author of We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. I met Ibu a few months ago. We did a panel together. And he just has such an infectious way of thinking about how we can fix the real problems in the United States and how we can actually take inspiration from the way in which members of different ethnic, cultural, and particularly religious communities are working together in practice, in everyday life. We had a great conversation about how critical race theory shaped his thinking, but also how he came to see its limitations and its pitfalls. We talked about why America does relatively well on religious tolerance relative to so many other countries in the world. And we talked about the role that civil society needs to play in sustaining our democracies. I came away from the conversation feeling much more upbeat than I did at the beginning. I hope that listening to the conversation will have the same effect on you. Ibu Patel, welcome to the podcast. Yasha, it is great to be with you. So 
we met recently when we were at a panel together at the Chicago Humanities Festival and, and really sort of hit it off intellectually and had a wonderful lunch before the event and could have talked for hours. And when you published an excerpt from your book, in your Times, which I thought expressed some of the spirit with which you approach your work and these questions really beautifully. It explained what critical race theory meant to you when you were in college and first exposed to, to it and how it helped to illuminate your own experience, but also how you soured on it in some important ways. Why did critical race theory speak to you when you first encountered it in college? Yeah, well, thank you for that, Yasha. And the New York Times piece is an excerpt of my book, We Need to Build. And it basically tells the story of how I had grown up as a brown kid in the very white western suburbs of Chicago in the late 80s and early 1990s, experiencing kind of an ugly and insidious form of racism. People making fun of my mom by painting dots on their head, even though we're Muslim and not Hindu, but that was just the way to make fun of brown kids and Indians. I remember working at my parents' Subway sandwich store one day and a white person walking in and I was getting ready to make a sandwich. And he said, I don't want you to make my sandwich. I want her over there to make my sandwich. And I'm like, well, I'm perfectly capable of doing this. I know I'm young, but I'm experienced. This is my parents' store. And he leaned in and he was like, you don't understand. I want her to make my sandwich. Well, the discernible difference between her and me was that she was white and I was brown. And growing up, I had no language for this, right? And these kinds of things, it's not like they happened every day, but they happened often enough for me to be constantly on my guard. And of course, there was a conversation about racism in academic classes in high school, but it was always about slavery and segregation. It was always about these very clear structural things. So I get to college and I hear terms like white supremacy and critical race theory and the understanding that's advanced is that what white supremacy is, is the understanding that cultures associated with white people are superior to cultures associated with non-white people. And it just felt like a huge part of my experience fell into place. It connected a whole set of dots for me about what I'd gone through, this insidious form of racism that I had no language for. And I basically swallowed the pill whole. And the story of the op-ed and really the story of my book, We Need to Build, is the problem of thinking that the bad stuff is everything. Because there were so many other parts of my experience. I'd gone to an excellent public high school. I went to an excellent public university. I grew up in a loving family. I grew up, you know, professional middle class, prepared to be a knowledge worker in the knowledge economy. But a huge part of the problem of the critique approach to the world, whether it's about race or gender or anything else, is that it insists on only seeing the bad things, right? And one of the ways I think about this is that if you are only focused on the elephant in the room, only focus on the bad things, you miss all the other animals in the zoo. And I actually don't think it's very good for human beings to only tell the worst story about themselves, only about their worst experiences. And I don't think it's a good approach to social change to constantly be telling the worst story about a community or a nation or a people in the hopes that that's going to make things better. I don't think it makes things better. You have a really beautiful story about how you started to understand the need to build or you started to understand how limiting it is only to look at the worst experiences or only to try and see the worst aspect in any human endeavor, like a work of art. So perhaps tell us about your professor who put on a play when you were an undergrad. 
Yeah. So I did this independent study in critical theory with a wonderful professor. And we read Bell Hooks and Paulo Freire and you know, a whole range of things that are generally associated with critical theory. And it was interesting. She would try to get me to think of positive and constructive approaches to engaging with this set of issues. But when I was 19 or 20 in this independent study, I didn't want to do that. I thought sophistication meant only telling the most negative story possible. And this material gave me, gave me the kind of tools to do that. It was very much a kind of Ani DeFranco approach from the mid-1990s. Every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. So this professor of mine, she was a professor of education and theater. She puts on a play with her graduate students about kids, about what it's like being a kid growing up. And she invited me to the dress rehearsal. And in the talkback session, I stood up in front of, you know, this like audience of people who was there. And I just blasted the play. I talked about how one of the kids had his own room and that was classist and racist. And how would it make kids who didn't grow up middle-class feel? And I just, for like three or four minutes. Because not all kids have their own room. Right. And that was just one of the things that I said. And I thought that I was being kind of a paragon of sophistication. I thought this is what intellectuals do. They stand up and critique things. And the look on the faces of these graduate students who were acting and my professor was just like, they were aghast and they were so deeply hurt. And that was the last thing that was said in that talkback session, meaning nobody else asked a question. Nobody else said anything. I had just laid on this critique. It had just kind of chilled the room. And a couple of days later, I get this email from my professor and she's like, I can't believe you did that. Like I expected more from you and you should try your hand at writing a play because creating something is much more difficult and frankly, more important than critiquing it. And this was towards the end of college for me. And I remember sitting there and looking at that email and just thinking that my professor had basically said, grow up, right? Like adults don't approach the world by telling other people what they're doing wrong all the time. Adults approach the world by saying things can be improved and I'm going to put something into the world that improves it, whether it's a better novel or a better play or a better organization. And so that was kind of an early experience of like reflecting on what kind of social change agent do I want to be? What kind of intellectual do I want to be? Do I want to be the person who's constantly telling other people what they're doing wrong, right? Do I want to be an arsonist? Do I want to be setting fire to things? Or do I want to be an architect? Do I want to be creating things? And I want to be creating things. And so you went on to do that at a very young age, right? I understand that after college, you went to England, I believe, for graduate school for a few years. And then you came back to the United States and started what's now called Interfaith America. What was the idea behind this institution? And how do you think we can build, you know, to me, who perhaps has less of an activist bent, that can feel hopeless, right? You look at the world, And it is such a big and complex and messy place with so many different actors in it. You know, what should give anybody the confidence that you can go out there, build an organization, build a set of activities for people, and that might actually add up to having real influence on how the world goes? So actually, the beginnings of Interfaith America happened just before I went to graduate school in England. And it was kind of a similar moment to the professor moment I spoke of earlier. And incidentally, I think the kind of path that I've walked, it's a common path by activists. A lot of people are initiated into activism by very black and white strident voices, right? And one of the calling cards is you have to shock people into a new way of looking at the world. 
I think that there's some merit to that, right? I just think that it can't last very long because you can't just have a gazillion people out there telling the worst story about things. So in any case, when I was in college, a lot of my activism was around diversity issues. The mid-1990s is actually an era that feels quite similar to our era today. It wasn't called wokeness then, but there was like a very heightened consciousness around race and gender and sexuality. And I think there is a very positive story to tell about that. Bell Hooks and Cornell West were being read everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. So towards the end of college, I kind of realized that religious diversity is never a part of the conversation. And I have become, at this point, more kind of inspired by faith-based activists, particularly Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement. The way I put it is they loved people more than they hated the system. And a lot of activists I knew, it seemed to me that they hated the system more than they loved people. So in any case, I'm getting interested in kind of religious forms of activism. And as a part of my interest in religious forms of activism, I start going to interfaith conferences. And I'm looking for Bayard Rustin and Dorothy Day and Pauli Murray and Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm looking for like the kind of next generation of these great faith-based activists. And what I really find is, you know, old theologians talking. And I did what I was taught to do as an activist in college. I stood up, I raised my fist, and I called them out. And I'm 20, 21 years old. This is June of 1998. Maybe I'm 22. And I'm the firebrand young person on the floor shouting people down. And a striking thing happens at this conference, the United Religions Initiative in June of 1998, this woman walks up to me, her name is Yolanda Trevino. And she says, you know, what you're talking about, which is a movement of young people from diverse religious traditions engaging in social action together, that's powerful. You should build that. And it was, you know, a scales falling from my moment quite similar to that moment with my professor and her play in college, she kind of presented to me two paths, right? One is you can keep on yelling at other people for what they're doing wrong, or you can go build what you think looks right. And by the way, nothing's stopping you, right? Like we don't live in a dictatorship. You have every right to build a nonprofit organization, a civic institution. And this is, you know, kind of at the heart of my book, We Need to Build, is a major characteristic of diverse democracies is the ability of identity groups to build organizations in the civic sphere, which, by the way, end up affecting policy and government in many major ways. And so that's kind of the beginning of Interfaith America. That's the beginning of my journey to it. And then I just realized that this is very much the American story. And actually, the story of civil society around the world. So when Muhammad Yunus discovers this group of destitute women in a village in Bangladesh who have to take money from an unscrupulous moneylender and then weave baskets for this person all year long and sell their baskets for way below market prices, he doesn't think to himself, boy, I'm going to protest this. And he doesn't think, I'm going to write a book about this. He thinks, I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to figure out how to get microloans to these women so that they can buy their own raw materials and make their own beautiful goods and sell them at market prices. And then he builds an institution that scales that solution called the Grameen Bank. And it starts a whole field and movement called microlending, right? And that's one of a million examples. But I think that this is something that is one of the great gifts of democratic societies, which is the ability for individuals 
to create their own solutions to social problems and to build them in the form of civic institutions. So there's been a, a few books trying to think about how to make these diverse societies work and what the role of liberalism might be in that, right? So Frank Fukuyama, who was on my podcast, has a really important book on this topic. My book, The Great Experiment, tries to get at many of those themes and tries to puzzle through these. And I think your book, We Need to Build, is very much in the same tradition. Now, you have put very politely a kind of criticism to me about my book and Frank's book as well, which is that we don't pay enough attention to the need for civil society in this, but we don't talk enough about how civil society institutions are actually going to be key in making this work. I think that's a very fair critique, but since you have become, since your firebrand days, such a positive and polite guy, I don't feel you've ever given me this critique with full force and honesty. So what are we missing when we're thinking and writing about this topic without paying enough attention to civil society institutions like the ones that you founded? So I love your book, Yash. I really do. I think The Great Experiment is a terrific book. I love Frank Fukuyama's book. You know, I love George Packer's book. I would be honored for my book to be kind of thought of as part of this new, for lack of a better term, centrist way of thinking. And by center, what I really mean is rebuilding the great American big tent from roughly three to four inches left of center to roughly two to three inches right of center, right? Outright racists are not included in that. And people who want to just burn down every aspect of the system from the constitution to the separation of powers on the left would not be a part of that. It is a story of building liberal democracy in its various manifestations. And I think the way my book complements your book and Frank's book and other books that are more focused on government and more focused on kind of the political philosophy of liberalism is to highlight that civil society is an absolutely essential element of this. And here's why, right? It is the way most people in America participate in the public square most frequently. In dictatorships, you don't have people who say, I want to start a civic association, even something as pedestrian as a little league, because that civic association could easily serve in the mind of a dictator as an organizing unit for some type of revolution or some type of opposition to the dictatorial government. A huge part of what a democracy is, is it's inviting its citizens to create health and welfare for themselves, to create identity associations for themselves, to create solutions to social problems for themselves, and a structure that allows for the building of formal organizations that can be formally funded and have formal staff and you know address these things in deep and lasting ways, that's enormously powerful. One of the most remarkable and special things about American diverse democracy, I write about this a lot and we need to build, is that given the freedom of speech, religion, and association that is in the First Amendment of the Constitution, a huge part of what happens for American diversity is that identity groups, principally religious identity groups, build institutions, hospitals, preschools, colleges, social service agencies, on and on and on, that are an expression of their own identity. It makes them better Catholics better Muslims, better Jews, to build these kinds of institutions, but they serve everybody. That is a remarkable 
facet of a healthy, diverse democracy. Why? Because you don't have diversity unless identity groups can express their particularity. Otherwise, you have either homogeneity or you have a dictator who is suppressing everything. So the definition of diversity is different identity groups being able to express their particularity. The challenge with that is that when identity groups express their particularity in the form of a civic association, it can very easily become a group of people, a militia that is in tension with other identity groups. You see this in gangs of New York, right? Protestant and Catholic, literally militias at war with each other. Well, part of the American genius is the civic invitation for an identity group to build its own institution that serves everybody. So you are a better Catholic if there are Muslims and Jews and secular humanists who come to your university. You are a better Muslim if you are serving in your social service organizations, people who are not Muslims. That is a remarkable and fragile facet of a diverse democracy. And I think it's similar to, you know, you and Frank and others pointing out just how easy it is for an authoritarian figure, a la Donald Trump, to whip up a movement that wins him votes and then in his position as president is able to kind of suppress the way the government is supposed to work, separation powers and the like. That is an essential feature of a diverse democracy is the ability to elect leaders who respect how the system works. I think another essential feature is the ability of identity groups to form associations and institutions that serve people of all backgrounds. Let's go a little bit into why it is that this works relatively well in the United States. Why it is that these religious institutions end up serving everybody rather than turning people away at the door if you're not willing to sign on the, you know, dotted faith line. Some of this seems to be nearly contingent. I remember I was talking at some point, a light bulb really went on in my head about this, about institutional drift. So often institutional drift is a real problem, right? You have some kind of activist group that tries to address a real problem. They succeed, they manage to address that problem, but the group doesn't want to disband. So they start to invent problems or they start to become more radical, right? You made the argument, as I understand it, that with some of these religious groups, this actually ended up being a really positive impetus. So perhaps you have a Jewish soup kitchen or a Jewish orphanage for which there's, you know, a very, very pressing need within the Jewish community in the early 20th century in the United States. But as there are fewer poor immigrants coming in from Europe who are Jewish, as the Jewish community in the United States integrates and succeeds and so on, you have less need for those services within the community. And so what does the institution do? It doesn't want to disband itself. So it opens its door further and further and further. And it remains Jewish in some kind of important way, but it actually serves a community that is predominantly non-Jewish. And the same is happening with some Muslim organizations, but the same has happened with some Christian organizations and so on. That feels to me like a contingent institutional story. Is that most of it? Or is there also a set of background norms, ideals, aspirations, which make these civic associations in the United States open in terms of who they're serving, but make similar associations, certainly in deeply torn countries like Bosnia, exclusive merely for the quote-unquote true members of your own community? Right. I think this is a fascinating question. You know, I think there are endless possibilities here. But Yasha, what you just described is really the story of Hayes, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. It's founded in the late 19th century to resettle refugees from Russia who are Jewish refugees who are facing pogroms. And of course, Jews face 
a variety of programs and ultimately the Holocaust in the 20th century. There's plenty of work for Hayes to do when it comes to resettling Jews. And then there's the whole story of Soviet Jewry in the mid 20th century. But by the 1970s, the main refugee problem in the world is from Southeast Asia. It's from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, etc. And Hayes changes its scope of work to resettle refugees from that part of the world who are clearly not Jewish, right? They are mainly Buddhist. And what happens in the process of doing that is that Hayes begins to reflect on its own Jewish identity. They don't principally think to themselves, hey, listen, we make widgets. Our widget is to resettle refugees, and it doesn't really matter if we resettle them from Russia or we resettle them from Thailand. That's not their way of thinking. The way of thinking is we are a Jewish institution that is living out Jewish values. One Jewish value is clearly safety for the Jewish people. But another Jewish value is safety for all people. And if we have the opportunity to express our Jewish identity in that way, we're going to do it. And actually, we don't live in a world right now where the main refugee problem is Jews. We live in a world where the main refugee problem is really largely Muslims. And so you have Hayas doing most of its work resettling Muslims from places like Afghanistan. A Jewish institution considers it a Jewish value, part of its Jewish identity to resettle Muslims from Afghanistan. I think that that's just remarkable. By the way, I think the norms behind that, I think a significant part of the American experience, right, to the heart of your question, Yasha, is groups who feel excluded, who can't, for example, get healthcare and education and other institutions without feeling, you know, that there's significant bias or prejudice against them. They build their own institutions. This is very much the story of Jews and Catholics in America, right? Catholics feel like there's prejudice against them in public schools. There's the reading of the Protestant Bible as requirement in public schools in the early 20th century. So they build a Catholic school system. Same with Catholic universities. This is how Jewish hospitals emerge. Jews can't get healthcare at other hospitals. A big part of what they do is they write into their charters that they will not exclude anybody else. The hospital, the university, the preschool, when it is founded, is meant mainly for its own identity group because that group is feeling exclusion. But precisely because they have experienced exclusion, they decide that their institution is not going to exclude anybody else. And over the course of time, places like DePaul, places like Hayes, they serve more and more people from other identities. I would like to think that there is something in the American character and tradition which facilitates that. Really, I think that it is a remarkable leadership choice that is made by those set of institutional leaders in the beginning, and then subsequent institutional leaders carry it on and expand it. What do you think, Yasha? I'm curious. Do you think that Jews who build a refugee resettlement organization to resettle Jews, and 100 years later, that refugee resettlement organization is resettling mostly Buddhists and Muslims, do you find that as remarkable as I do and as central of a feature of a diverse democracy? Oh, yeah, I find it remarkable and I find it deeply moving. I think a lot about the double-edged sword of groupishness, right? And what it tends to be is that groups can motivate you to be altruistic and to act in these selfless ways, but usually it is in the service of members of your own group. And the double-edged sword comes from the fact that then also becomes very easy to say, well, I mean, who's not a member of that group, I'm going to treat poorly. And so... I do think there are these crucial questions about how can you build on the motivating force of a group, right? How can you build on 
I am a Jew or I am a Catholic and therefore I owe charity, I owe this kind of activism. But that ensure that actually that doesn't put you in conflict with other groups, but helps to bring those in as well and to build those bridges. And that's an incredibly hard question. So what are the background conditions that make that work? And I'm speculating here because you put me on the spot. I mean, one is obviously a minimum level of mutual trust or at least an absence of mutual fear, right? This is only going to work if you don't have reason to think that the people to whom you're extending a hand are going to you know, use that to stab you in the back, right? So there's got to be a working set of government institutions and other institutions which protect people against extremists, right? There's got to be a set of ideals in the society which encourages people to get along and people have to trust the combined force of those ideals and of those coercive mechanisms to know, hey, if I'm going to go and admit people to this hospital, to this orphanage, or I'm going to help people, they're not going to punish us for that in some kind of way. So that's sort of one minimal condition. I do also wonder, though, whether it needs something more than that, which is that if people purely thought of themselves as, I'm part of this group and you're part of that group, there's not enough mutual identity to go on. So I think you need something more universal than that. That can be at the level of a nation state, which is not truly universal, but it is within a country. Say, hey, okay, so you're Muslim, Ibu, I'm Jewish, but we're both Americans. And that means that we should have some amount of solidarity with each other and care for each other, because even as we recognize one important difference between us, we also see the important commonality. And at the highest level, of course, and I'm not personally religious, but I think this is one of the important things that religion can give us, there is a universalism which is inherent in most religious traditions, right? Something which says that we share a human condition, we share a soul of some sort, we share being, in most religious traditions, the creation of God. And so therefore, there is this important level at which all humans are the same. And so I think some combination of those factors might help to explain it. But I don't know, what do you think, Ibu? Am I missing something? Yeah, I think all of that is right. I think that there is in the American story, this idea that not only do we have a solidarity with each other, right, that we pay taxes to benefit other people. We, for the most part, recognize when somebody we didn't vote for is elected to office, we have to still you know, we still have to follow that set of policies and governments, et cetera. Again, for the most part, the last couple of years, notwithstanding. I also think that the set of initial American civic leaders, Ben Franklin is key amongst this, right? The people who found Harvard are key amongst this. They build a set of civic institutions that are meant for their identity group, right? Franklin actually builds institutions that are meant for all identity groups. He famously builds a hall in Philadelphia, and he says the pulpit of this hall would be open to preachers of any persuasion. If the Grand Mufti of Constantinople wants to send a Muslim to preach from this pulpit, it's open to him, right? So he literally builds civic institutions that are open for all. But then you have other people who build civic institutions out of their own identity, the founders of Harvard. But within the kind of institutional DNA, it allows for a diversity of identities to flourish there. So I think that there is in the early American DNA and in the early American story, particularly around religion and religious diversity, this notion that we need to let multiple identities flourish and those identities actually have to be in cooperation with each other. And one of the things I find fascinating, Yasha, is that 
for all of the talk that we have about diversity, the focus on race and sexuality and gender, all important things, religion is almost never a part of the conversation. And what makes this, for me, especially remarkable, and of course, this is precisely why I founded Interfaith America, to elevate the role of religious diversity in the public conversation and to train a generation of interfaith bridge builders. But why isn't religious diversity more a part of our public conversation about diversity, about American character, about American civil society, about liberal democracy? It seems to me there's at least two reasons why it should be. Number one, it's the dimension of identity and diversity the founders come closest to getting right, the European founders, right? And in so many ways, these are people whose closest proximate intellectual experience is the European wars of religion. And they build a whole different kind of experiment. Instead of following a course which ensconces a single religion in a nation, which is how the direction Europe goes for so many generations, they say, we're going to let a number of religions flourish in a single nation. Talk about a great experiment. And for the most part, it has gone well. This isn't to say that we haven't had religious prejudice and conflict in America, but it is not of the kind that has racked other parts of the globe, right? So why wouldn't we kind of elevate the American story of cooperation between different faiths? And the second thing is that religious communities play such a central role in our civil society, right? One of the things I read about and we need to build is, imagine if every institution founded by a faith community disappeared overnight. What would be left in your city in the morning? There's a whole bunch of preschools and hospitals and universities that would be gone. YMCAs would be gone. Places where AA groups meet would be gone. Probably half of your social services would be gone. All of these things are run by religious communities. For those two reasons alone, it feels to me that religious identity and diversity should be at the center of our national conversation. And I'm curious, that at the center of what it means to be a diverse and liberal democracy, I'm curious why it's not. I think I might have an answer to that. I'm intrigued to see whether you agree with it, which is simply that we tend to talk in general in society, but particularly when it comes to diversity and democracy, about the things that aren't working, or the things where we think there's problems, the things that we really worry about. And I think the remarkable thing about the United States is the extent to which different religious communities do get along. Now, of course, there are religions of which that's less true, and there are moments when that is less true. Obviously, the serious discrimination against Muslims, especially after 9-11, is one notable exception to that. And that's something that we do talk about. But by and large, Americans just don't worry that much about people being able to get along with each other, even though they have different faiths. And I think that's why it falls out of a conversation. Now, I think it can be really productive to bring this into the conversation as a positive example as one of the areas where this country's ability to encourage people from different groups to cooperate, to build, actually is really inspiring. I think that's something that could make us feel better about our own country in a really productive way. But I wonder whether the answer is simply we don't talk about it because it's not a problem. So I think that that's true. Robert Putnam and David Campbell wrote a great book about this called American Grace 10 or 15 years ago, where they point out that most nations that have religious diversity that are not dictatorships, in other words, where that religious diversity can express itself in political parties or civic institutions, they have conflict. And the United States is an outlier in this regard. So I think that there's two things I want to point out here. One is a general social change strategy. 
And my social change strategy, I think it's very similar to, you know, your favorite politician and mine also, Barack Obama, you write about positively in your book, I write about positively in mine. My general social change strategy is you tell a story of increasing progress. You connect the dots in history that kind of tell a story of increasing progress, except where it is obvious that that is not the case, as in the Holocaust, right? But there is much less racism in 2022 than there was in 1922 or 1822. It is not hard to tell a story of progress on the front of race or really any other identity. And in telling that story, you start to foreshadow the next chapter. And you are basically motivating your people to say, listen, you are part of a lineage of people who have fought for freedom and justice, who fought for inclusivity and pluralism, and your task is to write the next chapter. That's the social change strategy that I believe in, the kind of storytelling. And I just don't understand a social change strategy that says, tell the worst story possible about the world, and then people will want to make it better. Right? Or light a fire to the system, and on the other side of that fire will be paradise. On the other side of that fire is somewhere between Robespierre and the Ayatollah. When you burn things down, you don't head into paradise, you head into chaos. So that's the first thing, is just kind of a way of talking about social change. So basically, the positive story about religious diversity in America, why wouldn't we think of that as a model or a paradigm for how to deal with other diversity challenges, race or sexuality or gender? And I think the second part of this is that diversity work in the past several years has become about the quote-unquote oppressed opposing the quote-unquote oppressor. It's all about power relationships. That's not principally how I think about diversity work. I think about diversity work as cooperation across difference, cooperation across disagreement. I think it is remarkable when a Muslim heart surgeon who supports a liberal immigration policy and an evangelical heart surgeon who supports a conservative immigration policy, when they perform a heart surgery together. There's a deep religious difference, there's a deep political difference, and yet they're engaged in this really important activity together. That, for me, is diversity work. It's cooperation across difference. I have a lot more to say about why I think the kind of oppressor-oppressed paradigm of diversity work is off. I'm happy to get into that if that's the direction you want to go. I've sometimes heard references to this kind of paradigm of a critique of it, but I actually am not quite on firm ground about it, and so I imagine that some of my listeners may not be either. What do you mean by this oppressor and oppressed paradigm? How is that informing academic approaches to this topic, but also DI workshops, all sorts of practical work in the field? And how can we do better than that? How can we have an approach that tries to encourage these forms of cooperation rather than those forms of division? Yeah. So, by the way, I think that there is some value to this. I think that there is value to critical theory. I think that there is value to naming power relations. I think that the problem is when we understand all issues as either nothing or everything. Either you never talk about race or you only talk about racism. And so that's how I understand this kind of approach to oppressed and oppressor, that understanding of diversity work. So I'll offer a personal example. So on occasion over the past couple of years, my kids have come home and they've said that, you know, a camp counselor or a teacher has asked them how they feel oppressed as a Muslim, right? How Islamophobia has affected them. 
And on the one hand, I appreciate that because Islamophobia exists. And I got to tell you, like my kids have grown up being called names on the playground and having their faith made fun of. And that is an ugly thing. It's not a pogrom, right? It's not the end of the world, but it is an ugly thing and it shouldn't exist. And yet something bothers me in the way the question is posed. It is as if it is Islamophobia that makes Islam important. And in my mind, that kind of construction is enormously important, right? Because the notion is your identity has no content unless somebody else is prejudiced against it or opposing it or discriminating against it. And the truth is, Islam has a lot of content. And every identity has a lot of content. And I would much rather my kids be approached vis-a-vis their Muslim identity about how it inspires them to be better people, how it inspires them to contribute to the society, how it inspires them to serve others. In other words, what is the contribution that their identity inspires them to make? And this is why I talk about America not as a melting pot, but as a potluck supper. And the central thing about a potluck supper is that people have to bring a contribution. That's how I understand diverse identities. It is part of your contribution to society. It's part of what makes you you. It's part of your dignity. It's part of your identity, but it's part of your contribution to society. And I think a major problem with the oppressor-oppressed approach, I mean, one problem is it's so hard to designate who the oppressed and the oppressor are. How do you take into account somebody's level of education? How do you take into account whether somebody's parents love them? How do you take into account how people are kind of wired as part of their attitude? It's just impossible to assign power relations or oppressor oppressed based only on race, gender, sexuality, etc. But I think the biggest problem with it is that it assumes that identities don't have content, that they are made important by somebody else's prejudice. And I just think that that is a deep, deep violation of every identity from Black identity to Jewish identity to LGBT identity. All of those identities have content and that content is not all based on the oppression that they've experienced. I think little light bulbs just went off in my head, which is always the best thing to happen in a conversation, which is that, let me rephrase what you're saying in my own words, is that when you have this oppressor-oppressed framework, then your kids' experience of their own identity is, tell us about the ways in which your identity makes you suffer, right? Tell us about the ways in which you discriminate against the base of your identity. And as you're saying, that should be part of a conversation because sadly, if you're growing up Muslim in the United States today, that will be part of your experience. But a much healthier way for them to experience their identity and a much easier way for me as a non-Muslim to relate to them would be to say, what's important to you about your identity? Tell us a cool thing about it. Tell us something that you think your classmates will appreciate. And that's actually a way to build much more genuine mutual understanding and joy in the potluck dinner of America, in the way that we relate. And again, those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. But when the emphasis becomes all on the how does it make you suffer, rather than the what are you bringing to the table? What can we together find, you know, partake in perhaps sometimes, perhaps sometimes just find interesting, just sometimes appreciate from a distance. Some of those things will be things that are invitations to share. Some of those will be you know, religious practices or beliefs or whatever, that unless somebody is part of the same faith tradition, you're just going to sort of say, oh, that's very interesting from the outside. But that does seem like a much more attractive vision of how to make people feel like they have something in common, how to make them feel that they understand each other, how to make them appreciate each other. 
I think that's exactly right. That's why, again, you don't have a potluck unless people bring a dish. And a potluck is boring if everybody brings the same dish. This is why diversity is wonderful, because people from different ethnic and racial and geographic and religious backgrounds are likely to have different cuisines. And you want them to bring that dish. And you want to experience all of that. And you want there to be creative combinations. And you want there to be conversation across identity groups, etc. By the way, this is also a democratic society. You don't have a democratic society unless people are building the little leagues and YMCAs and recreation organizations and social service organizations. That's what makes up a democratic society. The ability and the invitation to participate by building things that serve other people. Incidentally, Yasha, I mean, I'm kind of struck that you say that, you know, you're only an intellectual and you don't know much about this because this is precisely what persuasion is, right? You thought that there was a problem in American life, in American discourse, and you build a civic institution that has a podcast, that has a great website, that has a great newsletter, that has your intellect and discourse and the people you built around it. It's a civic institution. In my mind, you kind of exemplify this kind of American tradition of, I see a problem. I'm not going to wait for somebody else to solve it. I'm not going to you know, spend 10 years telling the government to do something about it. I'm not just going to write a book about it. I am going to build something that addresses the problem. And I'm going to hope it inspires other people. Perhaps it's part of the socialist heritage of my parents and grandparents that I don't think of myself ever as an entrepreneur, even though I think in some ways I'm somewhat entrepreneurial, but thank you for your very kind words about persuasion. We have community events as well, and we have campus groups, and we have all kinds of things that really actually are trying to connect real people to each other. I want to push you from a very different direction. So in a way, this has been, I think, a really fascinating, critical dialogue with parts of progressive left, which you come from in some ways, which you have a lot of appreciation for, but you're also very convincing and pointing out some of its limitations or flaws. I want to push you from perhaps a more surprising direction, because I was wondering as we were talking what some of my French friends would say about all of this. And I think that the French approach to these questions has some real weaknesses, but it also has some real strengths, and it's often caricatured in the way that Americans describe it. Now, they might say something like, look, all of this might be nice, and it might be heartwarming in all kinds of ways, and it's certainly nice to see tolerant religious traditions opening the doors and the services to others. But don't we have a problem when half of the services in a city would disappear if religious institutions go away? Don't we have a problem if so much of society is structured around religious groups that perhaps there might be disadvantages to people who are not part of religious tradition or that religion becomes so visible in the public space and the public sphere that it's a threat to the separation of church and state or it's constricting the space for non-religious people. Now, I've tried a few times in this podcast to give a fair reading of what the French approach to laicity is. Could you give, in response to that line of French criticism, the best account, the best case for the American approach to this, for why my French friends should not be concerned about whether or not it's right in a different context, should not be concerned about the role that religion plays in civic society and perhaps more broadly in public life in the United States? Absolutely. So number one, one of the key ways that social services actually gets done in the United States is by the government funding of religious groups, 
right? And so the Inner City Muslim Action Network has a federally qualified health center. This is the case with, you know, dozens and dozens of Christian development corporations around the country. The reason that I like this, right, is that I'm a small D Democrat in a huge way. And what I mean by that is I like when people participate in their society. I like when people stand up and say, I'm going to form a block club or I'm going to start a little league team or I'm going to run a Cub Scout troop. That is a democracy. It is the way people participate in their society. And so when a civic group emerges, very often out of a religious community, because first of all, it's a narrative of, as you say, kind of a universal human connection for many religious communities. It's also a narrative of service, right? Of servant leadership. When a group emerges that says, this neighborhood needs better health care, we're going to build something, and then we are going to ask the government for funding to support that. That's actually how a huge amount of American social services gets done. And actually, American higher education as well, right? There are probably seven or 800 American colleges and universities founded by diverse religious communities. Virtually all of them get research dollars from the National Science Foundation, et cetera, et cetera. That's just standard. So I don't like the idea that impersonal forces in a city far away are going to be able to make all the decisions about the nature of civic institutions, little leagues and community health centers and PTAs, et cetera, in my neighborhood. I like the idea that people in the neighborhood say, I'm going to build this thing. And if it gets big and sophisticated enough, we can seek grants from the city or the state or the national government for it. Think about this as a Jane Jacobs approach to building a society as opposed to a Robert Moses approach, right? Robert Moses had this kind of macro level vision for New York City that had all these highways going through it that just wrecked neighborhoods. Jane Jacobs had a neighborhood approach to New York City. And she would go out into the streets and she would find things on the streets, even in very tough neighborhoods that were beautiful expressions of life, kids playing, mothers talking, et cetera. And she would ask herself the question, how do we do more of this? How do we create spaces where there's more of this? That's the kind of democracy that I believe in. And I think it's really exemplified by how religious communities build civic institutions that serve others. And, you know, by the way, this is a central part of what Interfaith America does, right? We connect religious communities and the civic institutions built by them in concrete projects of cooperation to serve others. We had a huge project around the vaccine, mobilizing faith-based groups to encourage people within their communities with a sensitivity to the religious and racial identities within those communities to consider the vaccine, right? So we're running all of these very concrete projects that are about diverse religious communities cooperating to serve others. Let me ask you this question to round off our conversation, which is that I feel torn between pessimism and optimism at the moment. When I look at cable news, when I look at Congress, but frankly, when I look at what I've come to think of as a kind of cultural civil war of the elites, including the circles that I'm in, I'm pretty pessimistic about the future of America. When I look at What's actually happening in the heart of a country, I tend to be pretty optimistic. I think American public opinion on most issues is very reasonable. When you listen to people in focus groups, they're not often well-informed. There's often one or two people who are blowhards, but by and large, they are very decent people. 
trying to puzzle through what they think is right in a way that I think we'd have a lot more respect for if we paid more attention to it. You're somebody who's out there talking to communities and organizing a lot more than me. Where do you end up falling on this balance between the reasons to be pessimistic and the reasons to be optimistic? I mean, I am by nature an optimistic person and a positive person. A huge part of that is my character. A huge part of that is my religion, right? So, you know, the Prophet Muhammad at many times in his career was close to being harassed and hounded even to death. And God saves him every time. And, you know, the Prophet Muhammad says, if you have a sapling in your hand and the world is going to end tonight, plant the sapling. And that's very powerful. That kind of shapes my cosmic vision of the world. I also think that when it comes to American history, I think things have gotten better. And you had a Lincoln during a civil war that fights the good fight and then tries to knit the country back together. You have a Jane Addams, who I write a lot about in We Need to Build, who in the late 19th, early 20th century builds a civic institution, Hull House, that is really the mothership for so many movements that strengthen American democracy, from labor to health to youth to education to recreation. And so I just think America is constantly producing Jane Addams. I think we are constantly producing Obamas. I think we are constantly producing Julius Rosenwalds, the Jewish philanthropist who partnered with Black communities to build 5,000 Black schools, right? I think we're constantly producing these remarkable people. And I just think it is through our civil society that they rise to national prominence and that they have an opportunity to kind of tell a new narrative to the nation and to build a new layer of democracy. I know it's an enormously hopeful vision. Again, that's my character. I see it in interfaith USA programs. I'm not looking at the worst of humankind. I'm not submerged in the crazy cable news discourse. I am constantly witness to remarkable young people and remarkable civic religious leaders who are leading towards cooperation, who are leading towards pluralism, who are building a pop-up nation in an interfaith America. And and that's the train I want to be on. I heard somebody say yesterday that there's uh, 333 million Americans, and the good news is that 321 million of those will not be tuning into cable news or talk radio tomorrow. Ibu, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for your work, and thanks for making me feel a lot more optimistic than I did an hour ago. Yash, I appreciate you. Thank you for the space you have created in American discourse for a reasonable conversation about what the nation can be. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.